0: Hi, welcome. This is Bob Groves and you're listening to the Provost podcast series called Faculty and Research. This week we welcome Dr. Brian McCabe, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology. He also holds multiple secondary appointments within the university as an adjunct instructor in the Regional and Urban Planning Program, a core faculty member in the program on Justice and Peace Studies, an affiliate faculty member in the Department of African American Studies and and also an affiliate in the McCourt School of Public Policy. Through his teaching and research, Brian investigates the structures that contribute to social inequality with a special interest in American cities. He teaches courses on urban studies, neighborhood inequalities, and quantitative methods for social research at Georgetown. It's published in many academic journals, and in 2016, he published the book, No Place Like Home, Wealth and Community and Politics of Home Ownership. This book unpacks the challenges of strengthening communities through home ownership as owning a home has emerged as the core vehicle for building wealth in the U.S. Brian, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you here. Maybe we ought to begin with your own journey. Some of our colleagues I've discovered over time have, have believed they were destined to be what they became from age six or seven. What was your personal journey on choosing your career?
1: Uh, when I was an undergrad at Georgetown, I was in the School of Foreign Service. Um, and like many students in the School of Foreign Service, I had sort of big ambitions for international politics, international affairs. And the second semester of my senior year, I took a course on urbanism and political thought. Uh, and that was sort of one of the one of the courses that really excited me and, and sparked my interest in the study of cities and of urban life. Uh, so from there, I went on to do a master's in urban geography. Uh, I worked in New York for the department of housing preservation and development, doing affordable housing development with the city. And then I went on to do my, my PhD at NYU. So, so I had sort of an interesting trajectory, um, started in the school of foreign service and I ended there as well, but in a sort of self-designed major that was more about the things that I wanted to study.
0: Gee, th- those roots look a lot like uh, what you're now doing. You you probably have more affiliations across the university than most of our colleagues. So how do those multiple affiliations allow you to be the best that you can be? And. And what are the challenges of those?
1: Yeah, one of the the ways that I describe myself is sort of one foot in sociology and one foot in urban planning or urban policy. And so that has been both uh, sort of, I think, a challenge being here, and also one of the really exciting things about being at Georgetown is by by training, I'm a sociologist. A lot of my work is in conversation with sociologists, um, but I've written in urban planning journals. I've written for urban economics journals. A lot of the work that I'm doing now is much more in conversation with public policy scholars and people that are really interested in the implementation of public policy. So I've sort of had to go out and find both at Georgetown, at McCourt, in the, in the university's new urban planning program, across some different disciplines at the university to find some other urbanists that are doing similar kinds of work, and then also take advantage of what's in Washington, D.C. So I have colleagues that I work with at the Urban Institute, at Brookings, at Fannie Mae, so kind of various folks throughout the city that are doing some sort of housing policy work. It's been a great place to link up with them as well.
0: So if I get it right, it sounds like that those multiple affiliations really you use as input and the building of a network and a building of a set of collaborators. Is that how you think about
1: it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've worked um, closely with a colleague in the English department on a studio-based course in urban studies. Um, I have some colleagues in the public policy school um, that I'm working on a new research project about evictions. With found that students in the justice and peace program really get excited about the kinds of courses that I teach, and therefore I have an opportunity to sort of link back up with faculty in those places. So been a way for me to sort of build a network to talk to people that are thinking about similar questions about urbanism or about housing or about urban inequality, but often from very different perspectives.
0: So I guess that as you navigated this, you probably picked up a lot of different language across the different fields that contribute to your area. And was that a, a challenge are you i, I guess you're multi-dialectical right. in some sense as
1: you talk to other scholars <laughs> right i speak to a lot of different groups yeah no that's right i mean one of the you know one of the challenges for me about georgetown has been that we don't have an urban studies program and so we don't have a, a sort of central place where urbanists on campus would go but there are um, a bunch of us approaching this from different different ways so my training is mostly as a quantitative social scientist um, my first kind of set of research projects was mostly quantitative but now I'm working on an interview based project that will be my my second book I'm working on a evictions project that will be mostly quantitative but I'm working with a a great ethnographer at McCourt the colleague that I taught a class with is a, a humanist so she looks at cities from a kind of whole different perspective trying to understand kind of that side of it so I've been able to to both I think sort of pick up the language that other that other colleagues are using, but also to, to kind of be a resource for them in the way that they're a resource for me, right? When um, when colleagues want to think about gentrification in D.C., which is something that I um, have done some work on, right, they'll come to me. Um, and when I want to think about urban ethnography, right, which is something that I was never trained in, I'll go to some other people. So so it has been a great place to sort of pick those up, I think.
0: And then when you do your research and you're, you're seeking to disseminate it, it sounds like you're you're actually using media from different fields at the same time, and that itself must be an awakening to to the different literary forms of research output.
1: yeah, yeah, we've done um so I have a, a book as as the provost mentioned as you mentioned, I have a book as you mentioned, um that's sort of for a you know for an academic audience, but I have some work out of that that's meant to think a little more publicly about home ownership and home ownership policy. I'm working on a new project that's about campaign finance in Seattle, and a big part of that has been policy briefs, right, that are aimed to just describe the program to to both policymakers in Seattle and to policymakers in some other cities that are working on similar kinds of programs. So I think one of the challenges for me at this point in my career is that sort of a lot of the public, a lot of policymakers are thinking about these issues that I'm interested in, right, gentrification and the consequences of it, about housing policy and the lack of affordable housing, about the way that homeowners are involved in their communities and they shape the possibility of what's being built and constructed there. And so I want to make sure that I'm doing work that both, you know, translates into policy, but also speaks to a broader audience. So I did for example, a series of posts on Greater Greater Washington, which is a popular kind of urbanist blog here in DC. And the idea of the post was to, um, to, to just explain kind of different affordable housing concepts, right? We talk about housing choice vouchers and assisted housing and public housing and tax credit units, right? And to say, when we talk about those, sort of what does that mean, right? And to give readers of Greater Greater Washington some context for, for, for understanding kind of the basics of affordable housing policy.
0: So there was a time in the U.S., uh, probably in the mid-60s and 70s, where urban studies was, was a different kind of intellectual frog pond. There was a lot of research money in the field. Tell us the your own version of the intellectual history of the field, and how did it get from that state to where it is now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I guess I would I would sort of answer that by thinking a little bit about what's gone on in cities and I think that we can contextualize it in in Washington DC. So in the 1950s and the 1960s, right, we had an enormous amount of white flight, right, whites leaving cities and and sort of left behind in cities were neighborhoods of concentrated poverty and concentrated disadvantage. So by the 70s and the 1980s, a city like Washington, D.C. was uh, largely African-American. The poverty rates were really high. And then what's been going on over the last couple decades has been this sort of reemergence or return to the city, right, as people are sort of moving back in, as neighborhoods are start starting to gentrify, as the racial composition of the city has shifted. So when I got to Georgetown in 2011, that was the year actually that demographers marked as the year that the population of Washington DC was no longer majority African-American, right? The African-American population had fallen just below 50% in 2011, right, as gentrification started to happen in these places. So so a lot of the scholarship that we think of is in, in urban studies, books by William Julius Wilson and Doug Massey, thinking about concentrated poverty and concentrated disadvantage, um, come out of kind of a sort of earlier understanding of, of what the city was. Um, and then I think now we're having this kind of resurgence of interest in urban studies as we're studying gentrification about the consequences of this process for communities and for displaced communities, things like rising rents and rising property values and thinking about who it is that that sort of benefits from them. And then the kind of other emergence that's been interesting, and I think especially for, for kind of the parts of the Georgetown community, is we have this emergence of a kind of global cities literature, right? So in the early 1990s, we started recognizing that there were a set of cities that that kind of played this important control and command function in the in the global economy places like New York and Tokyo Frankfurt so there's been a kind of resurgence of interest in maybe global cities or kind of cities around the world and the the different ways that they're kind of involved in the in the global economy the flow of things from one place to another so so in that way I think we're kind of interestingly situated as a field to study both things that are Global and, and right, exp- extremely important for kind of reproducing inequality globally, but also to, to sort of look at it in our own community and under- understand right, what's going on on the ground in a place like Washington, D.C. On the,
0: on the global cities front, what are the key questions driving that field that, is, that you see in the literature?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so for a while, a sociologist named Saskia Sassen wrote a book in, in 1991 called Global City. The Global City, which sort of catapulted this to the top, and um, and Sassen was interested in this kind of small set of cities, right, that she saw as kind of driving driving the global economy. And I think what's what sort of come out of that over the years, I would say, sort of two things so one is to think about how it is and why it is that we classify hierarchies right what's the value in in having this sort of hierarchy of cities right some cities being global and in that sense and some cities sort of being less important or less less important to the global economy so part of it is that and one of the things that i think you see in urban policy and especially in some cities on the periphery is this sort of attempt to become a global city right so in my urban studies class we read a book about mumbai in this slum called Duravi, right? And one of the kind of arguments um, about the redevelopment of Duravi which is in the, the center of the city, is that in order for, for that city to be a global city, right? To be recognized as a global powerhouse, right? They need to get rid of and clear out the slum, right? And so it raises all these questions about, Who has a right to place who it is that's driving those developments right in many ways kind of parallel questions to some of the ones that we're asking in in washington dc so i think one is this global city hierarchy status question and then the other is a a critique of it that i find really interesting about what we might call the the kind of ordinary city right so the kinds of places where probably most of the world's global urban population lives but are totally off the map right names of cities that we've never heard of that that house an enormous amount of the population so remember a couple of years ago, I had a, a statistic in my, in my urban studies class when we were talking about it that there were there was something like 200 cities in China that were larger than Houston, right? Kind of the, the third or fourth or fifth biggest city in America. So I think there's this kind of resurgent interest in not just studying kind of the biggest ones, right, but also trying to understand these other cities that are growing really rapidly where people are moving to, but don't have the cultural cachet or kind of aren't on our, our mental maps in the ways that, you know, New York and L.A. and Shanghai and Tokyo are.
0: Let's go back to to your day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. You're active in a whole lot of different research thrusts, yet you're teaching and mentoring students. And I'm interested in how you juggle those things. Do you see those as synergistic? Do you get research ideas out of the class
1: and vice versa? Yeah. Uh,
0: How do you navigate those two sides of your life?
1: Yeah, so I'm in a a unique position at Georgetown, which is that I teach in an undergraduate-only department. And so to the extent that I'm able to kind of integrate students into my research, which increasingly I've been able to do, it's very different than integrating PhD students who are sort of training to be researchers, who have a long career trajectory with you, who devote you know, a lot more time to their research. So let me speak a little bit about my sort of classes and how it links up and then about the research and how it links up. So I've been very fortunate in my teaching responsibilities. I teach, usually every year, I teach an urban studies lecture, just kind of a broad in introduction to urban studies as a discipline and it draws on architects and planners and political scientists. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of who I see myself as, as well as an urbanist. And then I teach a number of seminars kind of on rotation that relate very closely to my research. So I teach a course on, we call it Public housing theory and practice, but it goes through kind of the the history of public housing policy in the U.S. Um, it looks at how it is that research is linked up to policy. So some big um, interventions from the Department of Housing and Urban Development and some other researchers. We try to get students to think about how it is that research actually influences policy. How we do research, different kinds of research in housing policy, and then to sort of encourage them to think about what a more just or equitable housing policy would look like. So that is a course that. It was very close to, to my own research, to what I think about every day, and it's exciting to be able to to share it so directly with the students. I teach a course on called Gentrification, Justice, and the Future of Cities, and that sort of came out of student interest. I found that in my urban studies class, the thing that students were most excited about was trying to understand this process of of gentrification, right? We do a great job at Georgetown, I think, of, of getting students out into the communities to do volunteer work and service work, to tutor, to sort of see places that are very different from Georgetown, but they come back to campus And they don't always have the the kind of apparatus to process that, right? Why, when you go to Ward 7 or when you go to Ward 8, why is it 98% African-American? Why is there, you know, very little commercial establishment on some of the main roads? Why is the poverty so much higher? Why are the schools, you know, so different? And so what we've done is we've done a great job of kind of getting them out there and less work to help them sort of process what what they're seeing there. And the gentrification course, I think, has been really good for that. Take my students on a walking tour in Shaw where we... We walk through, we talk about the history of the neighborhood and bring them to some businesses, and then we all have, have dinner together. So so I've been able to sort of link my research or my research interest and in my teaching in ways that are, are really exciting for me and I think kind of valuable for the students. On the actual research side of it, the challenge I think is, is coming up with research tasks that undergraduates both have the skills to do and the time to do and the commitment to do, right? So so often the set of things that I would like to have an undergraduate or a research assistant do, a lot of undergraduates simply haven't built those skills yet, right? So most of them can't data yet. Uh, Sometimes the interview process, I've been doing interviews for two years with housing authorities, so two years is a kind of long lifespan for an undergraduate to be involved, but I have been able to find some other ways that to integrate undergrads into my research. So I'll I'll share kind of the big one right now. Professor Rosen and McCourt and I are working on a new project about evictions in Washington, D.C. And we have some funding to code all of the eviction records, all the eviction filings from 2018. So about 30,000 eviction notices were filed. Those are available only as PDFs. And what we need to know is information like who is getting evicted, what was the rent, whether the unit was subsidized. The only way to get that information is to actually go PDF by PDF and code that information. So this summer we've hired 12 undergraduates who are working on coding that information. And by the end of the summer, um, we'll have a data set of all the eviction filings in washington dc in 2018 really detailed records that we can ask we can use to ask a number of research questions and this is the kind of data that's you know it's simply not available from administrative records it's not available in most other cities so so that's a way that that we've been able to to get them involved and the nice part about that project when we first met with them we said you know You should be coding data that's your job but you should be thinking about the big questions that come out of this so what what strikes you when you see these records what do you want to know out of it and and we'll get emails from them every now and then that say you know i saw i keep seeing this one management company is doing all the evictions in in dc right why is that the case right and that's a great research question we found in our preliminary data that 10 10 Ten plaintiffs or ten landlords were responsible for filing half of all evictions in DC. Right. So those are. So they see that question, or they they say, when I'm coding data, I notice that these three zip codes, right, seem to be where most of the evictions happen. Right. And and we'll be able to know exactly by the end of the summer. But in our preliminary data, we found that four zip codes in DC account for seventy percent of all eviction filings. So so it's been great to to not only right, sort of use them on a task where they're really helpful, right, where we have sort of manpower to do this work that Professor Rosen and I wouldn't be able to do without them, but also to to sort of enable them to, right, tell us what kind of questions they're coming up with and sort of add to the questions that that we were thinking about when we started the project.
0: So tell us a little more about that that collaboration. Collaborations are interesting human relations, I think. Yeah. So... What does Professor Rosen bring to the table? What do you bring to the table? And what have you taught each other?
1: Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great partnership. So I have one research partnership with a colleague from grad school who I still work with, a great collaborator. And Professor Rosen and I have a great collaborative relationship. So I think sort of what works for it uh, from my perspective. So Professor Rosen is an ethnographer. Um, she does work on the Housing Choice Voucher Program and landlords in the program and neighborhoods in Baltimore. Um, My research has been much more quantitative and about homeownership and homeownership programs. But I started doing work in the last couple of years on housing authorities themselves. So there's a a kind of shared overlap of the topics that we're interested in. And then I think that we think about it in in very different ways, in ways that are really complementary, right? So I'm not an ethnographer. I haven't spent time sort of living in a neighborhood, talking with all the, the people that are involved in the program at the neighborhood level. But I do get excited when I when i download um data from the voucher management system which is the the system that housing authorities of which there are 4000 they upload to to the federal government every month right so i have 4000 housing authorities 12 months in a year 10 years of data you know 200 pieces of information right i i get excited to look at and to analyze that, right? And so, so we come to we come to it, I think, from very different perspectives, but to a very similar set of questions. And I think that's been sort of a really helpful part of of that collaboration. And then, I guess the other part of it is to have colleagues that trust and you're excited to to read your work, right? No matter how flawed it is. So I share with my students, right? I would never write a paper and submit it and be done with it, right? When I write a paper, or when when any of the faculty write a paper. There are endless drafts. You usually scrap the first one entirely. Half the papers you start writing, you never finish. It takes years from start to finish. You've got ten set of eyes on it. You know, some people think it's the best thing they've ever read, and some people think it's the worst thing they've ever read. So to have sort of research collaborators, and I think especially the ones at the beginning of that paper process, right? When you're kind of near the end of writing a paper, it's pretty easy to share it. But when it's when it's a little raw and you're a little bit unsure, you want somebody who, right? Who you think is brilliant. And smart, and knows a lot about this topic, but you know who also will uh, be sensitive to write papers being at an early stage. So I think for me, kind of those are the those are the things that work about research collaborations.
0: So, so those points are a, a great segue to a different question. I mean, you're essentially saying what we do as faculty members is hard work, and the hit rate is much lower than anyone would ever know. Yeah. Looking at, you know, the latest issue of a journal. Yeah. So, why do you do that? What, why do you keep doing this? I think students rarely get the answer to that. yeah and yeah
1: well i think I think for me it's you know I've sort of hit on a set of questions for my you know eight years here and my couple of years when I was finishing grad school that are about housing and inequality and kind of social policy around housing, and there are a set of questions that I guess at the end of the day that just really excite me right that I that I want to work on there are questions that I want to know the answers to um, and, and so that I think is the you know that's the only way for me to get out of bed and do this because the truth is in, in academia if you know if I don't write anything for the next two years and I just come in and I teach twice a week you know eventually that's going to catch up with me but but not tomorrow like a, you know you're sort of your sort of uh, job outside of academia. And so I think that um, it's got to be questions that, you know, that you're excited about and that you want to know the answer to. That to me is the only way that I sort of motivate to do this work. The potential to kind of influence policy is also also matter. So the other one of the other big projects I'm working on is about um, this campaign finance system in Seattle. They have a new voucher based system where long story short, everybody in Seattle gets $100 in what they call democracy vouchers. And you can spend them on the local political candidate of your choice, a candidate for city council or for mayor, city attorney. So it's a way to kind of shift the campaign finance system and make it more equitable and bring more voices into it. Well, we're the first people that are doing research on the program. We have two papers and a policy brief on it. I I feel really excited that that's going to influence how both Seattle does their uh, voucher system to know more about are the donors, are are they bringing in new donors how much money is being used and then for some other cities that are thinking about this kind of program right to to sort of understand the Seattle example so I think that the the other piece of it with my work on housing vouchers the stuff with Professor Rosen on eviction with the, the Seattle piece it's to really to think that that at some level this right this does matter and it could shift policy outcomes even you know sort of just on the margins
0: Well, I I can't resist asking kind of a funny question. So I've learned that you rode a bike across the country. I did. And that must have been incredible itself. We should have our own episode just on that. Yeah. But you rode as a sociologist and an urban studies uh, scholar. So how did that part of your life affect what you experienced along the way? You must have seen a lot of things.
1: Yeah, I saw I saw a lot of America, I saw uh, 4,053 miles of America. <laughs> so I teach an intro sociology class and on the first day I tell them that, that my class will be successful if I ruin cocktail parties for them forever. And what I mean by that is that, right, they should go to cocktail parties and they should start to observe what's going on there, right, who's talking to who, who's standing in the corner, how do people who are similar than, than to each other congregate together, right? there's sort of this keen sense of being an observer in the social world that if they they leave my intro class and they they can't just have fun at a cocktail party anymore right everything becomes this this sort of sociological problem and the same is true for um, for my bike trip right it's something that I I had always wanted to do um, I had talked a lot about sort of just packing up one day and riding across America and then a couple weeks before I did it I just said you know I'm going to do it. I think it's going to take about two months and I thought a lot about whether I was going to actually do it as a sociologist where I you know where I talked to people and sort of collected their ideas or I asked you know 200 people across America a sort of set of questions and and I ultimately did it and I decided that I just really wanted this experience. The goal was to get from D.C. to Seattle and anything else that happened was sort of icing on the cake. But, but I did do it as a, as a sociologist and that I'm sort of always interested in um, people interacting and how people live and how it is that where they live, right, whether it's rural or urban or their social context, their state, right, shapes who they are and their politics and how they think about the world and all those sorts of things.
0: So it, I can't resist it. Spatially, you were basically in non-urban areas. Yeah, the vast majority of the time, I I assume. So did you start reflecting on on how your life as an urbanist fits in with the the geography of the country? Yeah, so (laughs) it was
1: um, the biggest city that I went through was Pueblo, Colorado. And the second biggest city that I went through was Missoula, Montana. Uh, but, you know, some so some urbanists would say even those kind of non-city places are a bit urban, right, in that they're producing thing, They're, they're caught up in this urban ecosystem, right? What's produced in kind of rural America is, is ultimately shipped into to urban america every like timber truck every every coal truck right has somehow linked up to the fact that we're an increasingly sort of urban place but but i will say i mean it was it was sort of my first love is cities but it was nice to get out of them for a while and then i ended up in seattle which is a uh, which is which is my number one city so
0: well brian mccabe thank you for spending time with us Pleasure. this was absolutely delightful Good.
1: thank you